So I am 36 years old now, and I now live in Ann Arbor. So lucky to live near you, Alex. That's how we met. Um, but I didn't always live here. I grew up in um, and around Bedford, Michigan, which is a little bit of a rural suburb outside of Toledo. Um, and met my husband here in Ann Arbor. We fell in love with each other, but we also really fell in love with the city. Neither of us are from here. Um, so we knew that we wanted to sort of make a life here, have kids here. We had like a 10 year plan the sophomore year of college, right? So um, we moved away for a few years for graduate school. I did graduate school first and then he did graduate school and then we were able to come back to Ann Arbor and I'm so glad we did. So I am a physician assistant or a PA and I get to work here at Michigan Medicine. So in the hospital here in Ann Arbor and I love my job. I took a job in gastroenterology right out of school and have always worked in gastroenterology with the same kind of crew of attending physicians and um, an ever-growing crew of PAs who um, I adore. I adore my job so much so that I mentor a ton of pre-PA students in undergraduate here at U of M um, because I didn't have that kind of mentorship or didn't find that in undergraduate. So we have a pre-PA club um, that I work pretty closely with. Um, and then I also take students because I love teaching, because I love talking. I've decided, I think, Alex, you can back me up here. Teachers love to talk about stuff that they love, stuff that they're passionate about. And MPAs do too, and doctors do too. So we love, just like lectures in college, we love the sound of our own voice. <laughs> so that brings me joy. Um, my job brings me joy. And then relevant to, you know, since we've known each other, um, within that time, I've had two kids. So I'm now the mom of a just turned six year old and a four year old girl. And that brings me a lot of joy too, but it, it really has shifted, um, my weight loss journey. It shifted my goals. I think it shifts everyone's goals, right? Um, even though it's part of your life goal and that was certainly planned, it definitely makes you shift and change your, your mind and your, your way of thinking about fitness and, and your health. Hi there, Coach Alex here from A-Team Fitness. Thanks for listening as I share incredible transformation stories directly from the source themselves, the individuals doing the work and seeing the results. We'll take a behind the curtain peek at the mental and physical changes that make for amazing transformation. I'm glad you're here. And after the episode, I hope you feel empowered to begin making some transformative changes of your own. Let's dive in. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's so much to unpack in, in everything you just said. But one thing that I want to just briefly mention, and I've kind of always admired this about you, is, and you mentioned... You guys kind of, you and Hesh both kind of had this 10 year plan, your sophomore year in college and that ability to kind of always know what you wanted and to have found a job that you are really passionate about and really enjoy and, and really take to heart and kind of knowing what you wanted and have, you know, built that for yourself is something yeah. I really, really admire because when I, my sophomore year in college, I had no idea what I wanted Right. Right. I, I think it's a blessing and a curse though, for, for both of us, we're both kind of similarly minded goal, goal minded. Um, because you also put 
time, sort of a term on things. Like we were, we were married really young because that's, that was the expectation and that's what we thought we wanted. And I'm, I am not like going, walking that decision back. I'm not, but um, compared to all of my other peers, we got married really early because in our minds, we had this timeline of like marriage, kids, house, career, graduate school, all of that was on a timeline. And when you're so rigid in your thinking and your goals, um, sometimes you don't leave room for, you know, detours. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, where did that timeline come from? Well, I, I think you're brought up right with a certain expectation of this is how you want to live or maybe how you don't want to live. I don't know. I, I, um, I was really privileged growing up with two parents who stayed together, um, and had a crazy marriage, but, but a, a passionate marriage. And I was really, really, I am really close to my family and that puts not only pressure, but also sort of a, you know, a a box around what you want your life to look like. And it's not that I think I, I checked all the check boxes, what my parents wanted me to do, but they definitely guided me. Honestly, my, my mom's a high school guidance counselor or was until she retired. So that helped, <laughs> you know, she had a five-year plan for me, but also um, I, I liked that kind of rigidity of, of a plan in my life. And, and she helped me get there. And my dad, who's the dad of two girls um, and an engineer, he really promoted me into science and into math. And I wouldn't be where I am today without, you know, his guidance too. So I think we're all shaped and structured by the people we look up to in life. Um, and that was certainly my parents. And it's so interesting, you know, I mentioned when I was in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. The only reason I got my degree in psychology was because it was mm-hmm. the only classes that interested me. Mm. So I was like, oh, this is, might as well pick this, right? They are interesting, yeah. Um, but even now, like, I have goals that I'm working towards, but, I'm, and I think this is true of everyone to some degree, whether they have a five, 10 year plan or not, is I'm just making it up, literally right. making it up as a <laughs> Yeah. And it's so interesting. I think, I think at some point, and I'm sure you had this realization too, at some point, I feel like part of adulthood is just looking around the room and realizing that everyone's making it up and nobody knows what's going on. Even our parents for the most part. For sure. um, and that is, it's, I feel like that moment is, it yeah. can either be very scary or very empowering. Yeah. You'll figure that out in parenthood that like, you know, there's no freaking books. There's no, you just, your parents did what they thought was best and you do what you think is best. And it's different from what your parents thought was best. And you are totally making it up. You're just like, oh gosh, I hope my intuition is right. You know? Absolutely. You had mentioned, you know, in, in work teaching and and teachers love hearing themselves talk about stuff that they're passionate about, which is 100% true. Obviously I can attest to that. (laughs) And the thing that, that came to my mind as you were talking about that was, I thought back to school, um, whether it was college or high school or whatever, when we had to write papers and give presentations on topics that, you know, were really hit or miss in terms of, was there any passion there to, to learn? Right. And it always, like, I remember the days of three page high school papers and like struggling, struggling to figure Mm -hmm. out how am I going to write this amount? How am I going to, you know, finish this paper? 
and and now obviously as i can attest i also love to talk about the things you know what i do for a living and the things that that i talk about with people every day i feel like i can accidentally write three pages just send oh i've seen email. that yeah i've seen your three pages of writing you write a lot you write really well alex if if nobody here has read alex's uh dissertations on uh, whatever you decide to write on weight maintenance or calorie restriction. Um, they're, they're great. They're phenomenal. Um, I, I wouldn't choose to do that, but you're great at it. Really great at writing. Thank you. You know, it's, it's, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I got into writing when I was about in middle school, I started doing some more creative writing just on my own. It was kind of mm. something I did for fun. Um, Fortunately, I don't have too many of those stories still around to look back on. And be like, God, this but I remember there, there was a, I would, in eighth grade, I had a, an English class where we had to write a creative story. And again, it was like a three or four page story that we had to write. And I remember getting that homework assignment and thinking, well, I already have this story written that was like 22 pages long of like single spaced you know, wow. whatever for a 13 year old, that seems like I wrote a book. Like I wrote a book. You did. Yeah. And I remember being like, I'm turning that in as my, <laughs> and so like, it was thick enough where I couldn't staple it. Cause it was so many pages. <laughs> so I had to paper clip it. And I remember just dropping it on my teacher's desk and he just looked at it and he picked it up and he like flicked through it to make sure the pages weren't blank. And he was just like, what? <laughs> I'm convinced he never read it and just gave oh. me a because of the length. I wouldn't. Absolutely not. That's a lot. Heck no. Um, but I appreciate your your vote of confidence in my writing. And, and mm-hmm. um, it's funny. I, I can be a little bit long winded with some of the stuff that I write because I love, you know, I think the nuance and the context to a lot of the topics that I talk about in general, just in fitness and health. I think a lot of the nuance gets lost in the, the, the takeaway, the headline, the, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the practical applications and the sensationalization. Right. Of it in, in marketing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, which is why I started doing those mindset Monday, the short, mm. very, like direct, some practical, some philosophical, get you thinking. But I, I purposely tried to make it really, really short so that I can challenge myself. <laughs> They're not always short, Alex. They're some not. Them, I know. Listen, we are all perfect. <laughs> we got it. We got to ease into it. It's, it's, it's a practice. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, uh, obviously, it's exciting that you have found something that you're passionate about and that you enjoy in terms of what you do for a living in your career, which you and I both share that we do something that we're passionate about and we love. And that's why we can talk about it um, for so long. And I think a lot of people are not as fortunate to have a career to be so excited about Um and so kind of what do you think, how do you think in your life, having a career that you are passionate about and that you do love so much, how do you think that has kind of changed your life? And I'll kind of leave that open-ended for you to define how you would compared to maybe something that you wouldn't be as passionate about. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword. I, I get to go to work every day and not dread it, not dread it. That's not to say that every moment of my day is uh, exciting or happy. Um, I don't get to always deliver good news. Sometimes I'm like, you know, talking patients down and trying to fix problems that I may have caused or, you know, the system caused. It's it's not an easy job, but 
I don't think I could, and my husband, you know, and I have been having conversations about this too. I don't think either of us, you know, would be okay long-term in an easy job um, because you need that mental stimulation. Maybe not right after you have a newborn child, but once your kids are like four and six, absolutely great to have a stimulating job to go back to. Um, I realized I really liked my job after I had my first child. Um, I had to come back to work after three months. I did not have paid maternity for either of my children. Um, I just had job protection, which is FMLA. So I came back to work at three months. Um, I maybe should have come back sooner because I had a, I had a tough time taking care of my son initially. Um, but when I came back to work, I was so happy to be there. I love talking to adults. Um, I love having adult conversations. I love doing what I'm good at, right? It's really nice to be in your comfort zone um, and get to engage with people who want to be there generally. Generally, I work in a subspecialty, gastroenterology. So patients wait to get into my clinic. Um, they're often referred from other gastroenterology practices. So this is like a second opinion or third opinion. Um, so that's exciting for me. They're excited to be there and I'm excited to, to try to help them and, and create quote unquote, the Michigan difference. <laughs> um, I don't, it's not funny, but I'm seriously trying to do the best, um, by my patients. Um, but that also doesn't allow for an easy work-life balance, right? Um, I, I don't want to go part-time. I, I want to give my patients a hundred percent. I think everybody in healthcare feels that way. It's, it's our prerogative to do that. Um, and in doing so, you, you are more rigid in your work-life balance. So um, I'm lucky in that my husband works in finance and he has a little bit more flexibility in his, his schedule of the day, whereas I don't. So when we need flexible childcare, like during the pandemic or sick days or whatever, um, Hesh was there. And then I've got supportive grandparents as well. Um, but it does, it, it sucks up a lot of your time and energy because you want it to. Um, I'm the kind of person too, but it's too much on my plate. I don't know if you do that, Alex, but I like take on way too many projects and say yes to everything. And eventually as you get older and wiser, you're like, you learn how to say no. I say yes to everything and, or I used to say yes to everything. Um, and that also limits um, your extracurriculars. And when you become a mom or a wife or whatever your obligation is outside of your job, it can be, um, it can be tough to pull yourself one way or another, even if you love your, you know, it's even tougher when you love your job. Right. Absolutely. And how, how have you learned to, set those boundaries both mentally and also just with physically working? Yeah, I think it takes time because I do um, I do take a lot of my patient care and my emotions home, or at least I used to. I think the longer you do um, a healthcare job where you're caring and you're empathetic towards patients, um, the really good providers, you know, take a little bit of that emotion home, in my opinion. But you do learn over time how to, um, you know, take it separate yourself and stop the guilt. Right. And I learned that from my physicians who came before me, who helped me sort of conceptualize how to take care of um, patients who'd had complications from something that we did. That's a really tough thing to um, mindfully think about because you were the one iatrogenically causing a complication um, or a different healthcare system caused a complication. And now you're trying to fix it. I think that's, um, that's really tough to work in a system 
that can benefit and hinder patients. Um, so I've, I've learned to separate myself from the guilt and separate myself from patients' emotions during, you know, during my workday and then emotions in the evening. I still have trouble, especially when I, um, when I miss a diagnosis um, or when a patient I'm really close to is diagnosed with something really serious that's still tough. And it, it's a reminder that like, I I still have a heart and emotions. And I think that that's normal. Um, I always recommend a therapist. (laughs) I'm not seeing one now. So, um, this is myself talking, talking myself into, you know, going back to a therapist, but I think it's great to have a third party to talk to, especially as a healthcare provider, when you hold a lot of like space and emotion and care for patients, Um, It's great to have an outlet for that, especially during pandemic times or, you know, if you work in oncology or end of life care, that's really, um, that's really hard Um, to sort of segue into what we're going to talk about in the future, too, is I transitioned about a year and a half ago to working in bariatrics. And part of the reason I made that that transition is not just because I'm, I'm excited about obesity treatment, because I am. But it's also because it, it was definitely a change of pace from what I previously treated, which was pancreatic disorders, biliary disorders, um, and some of the malignancies associated with that. So esophageal malignancy, pancreatic malignancy, um, and it, it was weighing heavy. I'd done it for 10 years. I accumulated a lot of patients, um, and it was, it, it was a tough practice. It was a tough practice. We lost a lot of healthcare providers too, and support in the healthcare system starting, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic. So I think all of that weighed on us in 2020. So I, I took steps to sort of make that transition. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I do want to talk about the, the bariatric stuff in a second, but one of the things that, that I can relate to so much is, you know, as a fitness coach, and even when I was primarily mm-hmm. in person, when you and I mostly work together, but even more so now online, is in the online environment where the conversations I'm having are very much like this. They're usually alone in their home. We're talking as part of my online coaching. We talk more frequently. I talk to them every single day. Most of my clients mm-hmm. talk to them more than they talk to their extended family. Mm-hmm. So that on the plus side creates a very strong relationship between us that allows me to better help them make these changes in their life. Cause they know, cause I can see the patterns, but they also know that they can trust me because we have such a strong relationship, but the double-edged sort of that, and, and maybe it's in some ways, I think a very good thing too, is when we're having these conversations, when they're in a more comfortable place, they're in their home, we have a more comfortable relationship, is it can sometimes lead to some really difficult conversations, right. very tough, very emotionally driven conversations. Mm-hmm. When I have you know, that, that ability to be in the moment and be empathetic and be there with them and, and kind of help them figure it out and then be able to step away from it yeah, and go right. back. Cause oftentimes too, you know, my days are, are lined with back-to-back calls. They're mm-hmm. 20, 25 minute calls that are just back-to-back. So I might have two or three minutes to pull myself out of that, like yeah. reset myself. Not to mention, as you know, I'm, I'm known to be very positive and very out there and very like, you know, vibrant energy. Yeah. And so being able to show up that way to every single person, have a super difficult conversation pull myself out of it two minutes later, start another conversation as if that one never happened. Yeah. That that has been an interesting part of the gig. 
Yeah. How do you separate at five o'clock or whenever your day ends? How do you make sure it's like time for Alex and your girlfriend and not, you know, do you, do you keep thinking about your clients or do you try to um, shut it off or how do you shut it off? So that's a good question. I, it's interesting too, because I guess technically my workday never really stops because I always <laughs> have text messages coming right. in. My phone permanently lives on silent. Oh God. Um, so I, after a certain point, I, I get better about actually checking my phone. Although I'm sure Katrina will argue that point. And say, <laughs> um, but you know, I think it's just over the years and with more experience, I've learned that, or I've, I should say I've gotten better, not perfect, but I've gotten better at when I'm looking at that text message or I'm on that call with that person, that's what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. when that goes away, when I push send, when the call closes, I'm able to just like, in my mind, it closes with it. It's like a tab that I put over there. Right. I go to a different tab. So right. I don't find like when I'm you know, occasionally it, this isn't always the case, but usually if, if Katrina and I are out to dinner or we're doing something, mm-hmm. I'm not like, there's not just thoughts of, of clients problems going through my head. Like I'm able to just, we'll deal with that another time right now. I'm going to be present. I'm going to be here. And it's interesting. My kind of test of it's, it's a, it's a test that I do every year. And it's a test of one. Am I too connected to my electronics? And am, I, am I not setting enough mental boundaries with everything going on with my work life, which is we have friends that we go to a lake house with. Every mm-hmm. And when we go out on the boat, I don't take my phone out on the boat with me. I leave it at home mm-hmm. at the house and I don't touch it again until the evening time. And so my test is, do I think about that at all? Mm. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And as long as I'm out and I'm enjoying myself, I'm enjoying our friends, I'm enjoying the sun, I'm enjoying the water, and I don't think about my phone, I don't think about work, I don't do any of that, then I'm like, okay, we're still, we're still doing good. But if that's gone and I'm sitting on the boat and I'm like, oh God, I got to like send text messages, I got to do this, I got to do that, then it's like, okay, time to start being a little bit more rigid about setting those boundaries. Absolutely. I think it's great too to have a partner that brings you back to reality. And I'm, I, don't, I don't know what Katrina does, but... Um, Hesh has always helped me. Even before I went to PA school, I would, I'd carry a lot of emotion with me because I took care of cancer patients. Um, and he helped me realize when I was sort of keeping it all and, and it was affecting me, right. He could be that onlooker objectively saying, what is, a, you know, what's affecting you? And, and you, you have to leave that in the hospital. You have to let that go and attack it, you know, at your next shift or your next time of work. So I think it's great to have someone in your life be able to recognize that if you can't do your own self test, <laughs> you know, that's really Absolutely. good discipline Absolutely. to do your own self testing. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Katrina too, uh, you know, she works as a pharmacist and now she mm-hmm. does um, specialty pharmacy where she verifies mm-hmm. orders and it's all at home. So she doesn't actually see any patients anymore. Um, mm-hmm. It's all through a computer. But when I first met her, she was a pharmacist in a hospital. And I remember, you know, she would have to go to the codes and, and work up the drugs that the doctors needed. So she was in that kind of very high stakes, high stress, kind of have to be on at a moment's notice. And I know mm-hmm. that she too, in the beginning of her career, struggled a little bit with leaving some of that behind. She would come home and tell me like she could still see the patient's face in her head when yep. she came home and stuff like that. Yep. And so she partially as her job change happened and she stopped seeing patients, she got 
the the challenge of that got smaller because it wasn't yep, so emotionally impactful. But mm-hmm. I think her experiences with it is helpful because she kind of understands mm-hmm. what it's like. And so she have, having to deal with it herself, as you said, can kind of help me be like, okay, like what's going on? It's, you know, um, Absolutely. So you're right though. It's good to have somebody else who can kind of look in, look in a little more objectively removed from the emotion and be like, okay, are you, are you like taking care of yourself? You, you, everything okay here? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, tell us a little bit more about endobariatrics. What is that exactly? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is very, very new. Um, and the physician I work with, her name's Allison Schulman. Um, she trained out of Boston, actually, with sort of the guru here in the United States, Chris Thompson, who developed a lot of these new technologies. And the idea behind what we call EBMT, or endobariatric metabolic therapies, is that we're using a minimally invasive approach, usually through a scope, because we're gastroenterology, right? So we scope. Um, we're using a scope to um, change your GI tract, right? Or change your, um, change different things about your GI tract, right? Um, eventually I think you'll, you'll see this expand to more, uh, medical therapy. Although right now endocrinology usually takes care of medications that help with weight loss. Um, but what we do generally in our clinic is we call primary procedures, which help patients reduce the volume of their stomach for a period of time or long-term, similar to what a surgeon does, but we do it through a scope. Um, And then we also do secondary procedures. So patients who've already had weight loss surgeries, who've had some weight recidivism, um, which is not terribly uncommon, especially many years down the road, right? Um, Following gastric bypass or sleeve gastrectomy, you can see some weight regain and we help patients get on track with this idea that, um, which the whole medical, the whole medical system has to, you know, start understanding this idea that obesity is, is, is a chronic long-term disease that constantly has to be, you know, um, talked about and, and treated if appropriate. And you're never, there's not such thing as a cure, right? You're, you're constantly working at it. Um, and sometimes that's, it's always diet and lifestyle, right? So I, I think there's a misconception that if you medically treat obesity or you look for medical solutions to obesity, you're ignoring diet and exercise. But I promise you, there's not a patient I've met who hasn't, um, you know, gone through Weight Watchers or been to medical weight loss or worked with an athletic trainer um, or logged their calories, right? And you have to have that basis. You have to have diet and exercise first um, as you go through these different medical therapies. So we work, you know, in conjunction with diet and exercise, and we're constantly talking to our patients about calories, diet, exercise, in addition to medical therapies that can help reduce cravings or change appetite or change volumes so that when you eat, when you're trying to calorie restrict and all of us listening to this podcast have calorie restricted if they worked with you um, or increased their calories, right? In any case, we, we've we logged our calories. We know how difficult it is to, to eat a certain amount of calories. What these therapies do and what surgical therapies do is make it a little bit easier to calorie restrict for a longer period of time. 
so those are, that's the patient population I work with now. Um, I also see from a GI perspective, a lot of patients who've had surgery and have complications from those surgeries like nausea, vomiting, that kind of thing, um, which in the GI world, I, I'd done gastroenterology for 10 years. So I was sort of used to seeing those patients. Now I just, um, I see them in a more, I don't know, subspecialized way. So um, I, I get to do a little bit of what you get to do, um, but also incorporate some medical knowledge and some different, you know, medical therapies as part of my treatment plan. Yeah, that's so awesome. And, and one thing that's important to, to mention, and you said it as you were explaining, is I think a lot of people who hear about weight loss surgery or even potentially considering weight loss surgery think of it as kind of uh, guaranteed this is going to help me lose weight, right? Like yeah. I have no choice. If they change right. my digestive tract and the size of my stomach, I have no choice. Yeah, it has to work. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right. So, and it has to work for everyone. Yeah. And, 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 and I've seen people who have gotten the surgery and didn't yeah. change their lifestyle, didn't change their eating habits. Yeah. They might've been a little bit more restricted physically in what they could do, but, you know, still falling into the same eating habits and yeah. nothing happened. Yeah, no absolutely. Right? Um, yeah, it so. doesn't work. I always remind patients, FYI, this doesn't work without the calorie restriction, right? This is the tool to help you calorie restrict. And if you don't calorie restrict, there's this, you know, we're not... <laughs> we're not doing anything different than you're doing by telling patients you have to eat X number of calories a day. We're just trying to make it a little bit easier for our, yeah. our patients to maintain those calories that, or that calorie restriction. Which it's, it's really awesome to hear you say that too. Cause one of the things that I always talk about with my clients is because most of the people that I work with are people who have done diets in the past. They've done the different fad diets, the low carb, the keto, the paleo, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And when they come into my program, we talk about, okay, all of those things are just different strategies to help you yep. restrict your calories. That's right. So we're just going to help you figure out a little bit more general, gives you a little bit more freedom way to restrict calories. That's not so regimented in these ways. And so to hear you say mm-hmm. too, even the surgery itself does nothing except help mm-hmm. patients restrict their calories mm-hmm. is really awesome to hear because it kind of reinforces that idea that calorie restriction is the thing at work here. That's it. It's calorie restriction over time. It's, I know that is oversimplified because I, you know, I, I know the physiology behind it, but it's calorie restriction over time. Big picture. I tell patients too, I, you, I'm sure you work with patients too, who have mobility limitations, right? They're, they have arthritis or back pain and their ability to do HIIT training or run a 5k is, it, you know, they're never going to get there. And I remind patients it's, you, you probably don't have to get to that, you know, fitness level to still lose weight because primarily it's calorie restriction over time, right? I think exercise absolutely makes that easier, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to, to kind of tie that into what we were first talking about is I think a lot of people, and this may be true in their regular life too, feel like they have to be on a timeline or just like our lives. Sometimes we feel like we have to hit certain life milestones oh, compared true. to everyone else when people are trying to get healthy, they feel too, like they have to hit certain physical milestones, run a 5k marathon, do a triathlon, do a Spartan race, whatever it is. 
And just like most people realize, we're all kind of making it up as we go. We're just, there are certain principles that are using to guide our life, the values that we hold, the goals that we have that allow us to kind of direct our path. It's the same thing in fitness, right? We have goals we want to achieve. We have a way we want to feel, a lifestyle we want to have, a certain Mm -hmm. amount of longevity that we want. But the specifics of how we get there, aside from calorie restriction, is pretty open-ended, right? Some people like running. Some people like biking. I totally some agree. People don't want to do any of it. They want to do the minimum amount of exercise they have to do <laughs> to be healthy because they hate every second of it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's important for people to understand that, that there's not these boxes that we have to check nope. on the road to being healthy. It's, it's, it really is based on the individual's preferences, their history, their medical history, their mobility, et cetera. I totally agree. And I think if you want someone to be long-term successful, which is your goal, it's my goal, right? We're, we're not, we're not sprinting here to our finish lines. This is a marathon. You know, you're, we're working towards health to the end of your life, right? You, ha- you better find something that you actually enjoy because you don't want the rest of your life to be horrible, right? <laughs> and maybe, you know, maybe that's hip training for you. Maybe it's not. <laughs> so, um, and it's going to change throughout life, right? It's going to change through your lifespan as you age or if you, you know, get an injury or an amputation or something like that. Um, and coming to terms with what you're able to do and capable of doing throughout that lifespan too is... Um, is going to make you more or less successful, right? Changing your mindset to I can do X, Y, and Z helps a lot too. And and you see, what I see in the athlete world is, I'm sure you've seen this too, is, is professional athletes or athletes that were really, really high performers early on in their life who came out of um, performing, right, in their 20s or 30s or whatever, now eat the same number of calories or, you know, have that same lifestyle that they had from an eating perspective, but they're not training eight hours a day. Um, and it's led to, um, a change in their weight, a change in their mobility, a change in their health because, you know, they didn't balance that, that huge change in their physical activity. Um, so it's something we have to shift as we think about those patients over time too. Yeah. It's a, it's a very dynamic process. It's always changing. It's always, we always have to kind of be adapting to our life circumstances. If we have a kid and how that changes our mm-hmm. life and, and, you know, our sleep schedule and, and all those different things. Um, and I think it's important to note too, that, you know, a lot of people, or I've seen rather a lot of people who start out, they may be overweight, they may be really out of shape, their mobility may be really limited and everything pretty much sucks, right? Everything, they don't enjoy anything rather. They don't enjoy mm-hmm. any type mm-hmm. of activity. And there are certainly some people that will maybe never enjoy physical activity, but there's also, I've seen people who start out not enjoying it, but as they find something that they can at least tolerate for a while and they start to lose the weight, they start to get in better shape, they start to feel better. Then one of two things happens. Either they realize, oh, I don't actually hate this physical activity as much as I thought because it actually, I'm better at it now. I can do more. I feel more competent. I feel more confident. I actually feel capable doing these physical activities. So that can happen or alternatively, or in conjunction with that, people, as they get healthier, are then able to do more things so they can explore more mm-hmm. activities and they can actually find one that they really like that maybe previously physically, they were unable to, to even do participate in. Yeah. So true. Both. I think both my husband and I will attest to that change in the enjoyment level of physical activity. Yeah. 
it's funny you you bring up Hesh because, you know, he's running now. And and there was one day on a call. Just ran together yesterday, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't run in the cold. So he's been running. He's a lot more fit than I am right now. Good for him. But um, I just picked I just ran with him yesterday Um, and I'm much slower, but that's okay. And uh, it, it was one of our probably I can count on two hands how many times we've run together but it's really enjoyable well he in one of our conversations he let it slip that he's been enjoying the running Mm -hmm. yeah so i had to make sure to let him know that i had it recorded and (laughs) forever saying that he loves running yeah it's it's a huge he told me yesterday too and he's fasting right now we ran in the middle of the day so he's probably like six hours post his breakfast um and he came in, I did not get the endorphin rush because it's been a long time since I've been running. Um, he was like, Oh, I'm still on my endorphin high. And I'm like, Oh, I can't wait for that to come back. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> As I'm like, you know, chugging water and trying to recover. Absolutely. So what is it like now working with patients through kind of diet, and lifestyle changes like that side of things, actually giving people nutrition <clears throat> advice and exercise advice and, and the whole shebang. Like how, how is that? Yeah. Good question. So it, I, I was somewhat afraid personally before I took this job, I knew what it would entail because I'd done some shadowing and I worked with the physician I worked with and I, I knew what she did. Um, I was afraid that my own personal feelings of inadequacy or body image issues we're going to keep coming up every single patient. Um, And I would be so, you know, I'd be thinking constantly about calories, calorie logging and exercise that it might start, start pervading my thoughts to the point where um, I would start having negative thoughts or feelings about myself. Right. That, that was a concern for me because I previously, I think, um, I shouldn't say I think, but for, for much of my like adolescent and early adult life had negative body image issues and thoughts, um, that I've sort of worked through and continue to work through, um, and exercise definitely helps with that. I realized that's not at all the reality of my job because first of all, not all of my patients (laughs) are like me. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and, you know, I knew that uh, intellectually, but in practice, it's very true. They're coming from a very different perspective than I am. Um, yes, some of them have body image issues, but certainly not all of them. Um, they all are sort of conquering different challenges, conquering different demons. I had my own demons and in no way do they necessarily sort of have to interact or have to, you know, trigger, um, me and my demons. Um, and I, I enjoy that. I actually, um, found that working with patients made me more positive. So in order to get good results for your patients or clients, you have to be their cheerleader, right? Um, and this is a different, um, job title for me. Um, I didn't previously have to necessarily cheerlead for patients with pancreatitis. You know, I had to be empathetic (laughs) and I was, I was treating very different issues, but with obesity and weight loss, 
you have to stay super positive, even when, even in, in light of a challenge, right? You have to say, how are we, how are you going to overcome this challenge? What tools can I give you to overcome this challenge? And look how far you've come, right? Look how, how, how much amazing work you've done. What made you so successful? I think that's, I learned a lot working with you and <clears throat> how to phrase some of, <coughs> excuse me, how to phrase some of my patient questions, like, by posing it. So to get patients to realize what they're good at and what they need to work on, you just ask them to figure it out. <laughs> Not with that question, but you can say what, you know, what's made you successful. What do you think in these last three months has been the biggest challenge for you? And what did you do to overcome it? Because then when they start to regain weight or when they, you know, don't show up for follow-up or something is missed, you can go back and say, well, when you were doing this, you had great success. You know, can we go back to that habit? Can we go back to that, um, that way that you were living, that you found such success? There's no reason, you know, um, that you won't find that success again. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I've only found it more positive and reinforcing um, of my own health goals to work with other patients who have those goals. And I haven't found a lot of self-doubt. I've found a lot of, um, you know, inspiration in my own patients. I think that's a good way to put it. And, and hopefully you find it in your clients as well, that all of their wins um, provide me positive energy, not, be, not because I did the work, they do the work, um, but because they're, they're appreciative, they're grateful, um, but it's also so great to get that energy from their successes, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you're right. When you're, it's only natural that when you're having these conversations and you're being that cheerleader and you are pumping this positive energy towards them, that as they start to transition and start to pump up some of their own positive energy through their wins, through their, you know, overcoming challenges, that it's just contagious, right? It kind of... Yes. It, it comes back. But I think there's also a little bit too of in the process of making yourself positive for their sake. It's like that old adage, right? You can't, you can't be sad when you're smiling or you can't cry when you're smiling. Right. So that just that action of being that cheerleader kind of bounces back and, and gives you some of that, that positive stuff too. You know, Absolutely. the, the kind of the hallmark of, as you know, of my coaching is self-efficacy, right? People, the, the belief in ourselves that we can do the necessary actions to get to our goals. And that's really mm -hmm. what is, in my opinion, kind of the fundamental nature of getting people to be successful long-term at this thing is getting them to believe in themselves that they can mm -hmm. do the necessary things to lose the weight, maintain the weight loss, live a healthy lifestyle. And um, it, it, one thing I've noticed when people come in and when they first start working with me is they oftentimes don't believe in themselves to be successful, right? So it's, especially in the beginning yeah. of the relationship, in the beginning of the program, it's my job to step in and show them that I believe in them to be successful yeah. by helping them realize their strengths, what they're good at, what they're already doing well, so that they can over time as they, one, again, they may not believe that they can be successful, maybe a little bit, but especially a lot of people who see me, it's not their first rodeo. Sure. I'm trying to reach his goals. So there's always a, a, there's already a little bit of, of history there of, of not being successful. 
So then they get my hit of, you know, I know you can do this. Like, I'm not even questioning that you're able to do this. <laughs> but over time, right, it's, they just get that. They're, they're going entirely off of that positive energy of, okay, my coach believes that I can do this. Maybe he's right. Right. Let's find out. But then over time, they start to overcome some of those challenges. They start to see themselves do the work and put in the effort and see the, the results. And over time, they start to believe it a little bit more. They're like, okay, maybe this guy's right. Maybe I can do this thing. Right. Yeah. And then that moment where they're like, no, I, I know that I can do this. Thing. Yeah. I definitely know that moment. I know that feeling. Um, I've, I've totally been there because of you, because of you. Um, I, I definitely got to that. And it's not to say that you, you have that self-belief forever and ever and ever for the rest of your life, but um, it, is a, it is a great gift to allow someone um, and challenge someone to, to be confident in themselves. It's really wonderful to give them the, the tools to do that on their own too. Yeah, absolutely. It's bringing that up, you know, I'm curious, you, you, you and I go back pretty far ways. You, our relationship predates 18 fitness. Yeah. yeah. Um, you are uh, what, what I refer to as an 18 OG, right? uh-huh. one of the originals. Yeah. And so I'm kind of curious from your, from your outside perspective, now looking in to, to 18 now and knowing me as a coach and knowing 18 before it was 18, I'm curious to kind of one, I guess, first hear what were things like back then? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, so I wish, um, I wish I had my OG comrades here to validate, um, some of the things I'm going to say because they're, they're pretty funny. Um, but my fitness journey began when you were, um, a very early trainer. And so we, we, we entered naively together and our, our paths crossed very early on, um, in my fitness journey and in your career. Um, and I, I feel very blessed by that. Um, but I also got the really early Alex, right. And everyone else now gets like polished Alex. Right. Um, and I met you after signing up for, um, a gym membership. And of course, when we all sign up for gym memberships, we get like, there's like free fitness coaching or free class or free, um, you know, time with personal trainer. Right. And I'm, I'm naive. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm how old am I at this time? Like, I don't know, 25 ish. This is, oh my gosh. It was it like 10 years ago, nine years ago, it's nine years ago, yeah. nine years ago. Okay. This is nine years ago. Um, way before kids. And I was at my peak adult weight because of course I'd like graduated graduate school. And as, as Mohi told us yesterday, working out during graduate school or during, during your PhD is, is challenging. Most of us don't do it. And so then we go out into the career world and we're like, oh, shoot, I have, <laughs> I have to actually like balance fitness and diet and all that fun stuff. So I went to a gym, no idea what to do. And I signed up for a free um, weight loss class and it was called Fit Tracks. F-I-T-T-R-A-X-X is what it was called. I remember that because there was a folder associated with it and like a single sheet paper with like what I was, what I was encouraged to eat. Um, I don't think there was anything about calorie logging back then um, in terms of like how to do it or 
um, what the heck your macro goals were or anything like that. It was just like, here's your big picture things that you should eat, you know, high protein, low carb, um, good luck, that kind of thing. And our fitness classes, honestly, um, they were done in a, this gym was like, so average Joe's anyone who's been there. Do you mind if I say the name? Go for it. Does it matter? Okay. Um, it's, it was one-on-one it's no longer a gym. It's like an office space now. And it was so old. It was like teal, teal colored weightlifting machines, right? At any given moment, most of the treadmills, over 50% of the treadmills were decommissioned, right? And occasionally they might come back to service, but couldn't find a treadmill, couldn't find an elliptical. Everything's like not working. Um, but let me tell you what their strength was. Their strength was their trainer, but also I did a lot of their group fitness classes and they had some, you can attest to this, some really cool group fitness, um, trainers <clears throat> that did some really cool classes. Um, so in addition to this weight loss class, um, which I got for free and then, you know, got roped into continuing because I made friends and that's the only reason I kept coming because <laughs> I was like, well, I'm going to get guilt tripped by Yuri or Amber, you know, or Jenny or someone who's going to notice that I'm not there and wonder why I wasn't there and why like I didn't have to suffer when everyone else had to suffer. So that's why I started. I, it was not self-motivated. I had, I was relying on your guilt and my friend's guilt who I'd made in the class, right. To keep me coming. Um, and there we were, and there was, there was some awful, it's really awful to start a fitness regimen. I, I don't know, like if anyone ever is like, oh my God, that was so much fun. The first time they do hit training or circuit training, right? No one's like, wow, I feel great. Oh, and during the circuit training, by the way, this is something that I didn't do with you at, at a team when you had gone to a private gym during this program because it was for weight loss, we would do HIT training with like four, you know, four different supersets. And then we'd walk upstairs and you'd make us do like 30 minutes on an, on a treadmill. So, uh, and that was, that was really tough. I still look back and I'm like, I'd, I don't think I could do that today, but I, I did because like, what's the alternative? Am I going to walk out? Am I going to say no? I, you can't. And while this, this is, this was worse, Alex, while we were on a treadmill, you would come around to us and we're like huffing and puffing <laughs> on our treadmill. And then you would ask us about our calorie counts and how we did logging our calories that week and how much alcohol we drank and all these terrible things that we're doing. You're like, you're getting it out of us while we're like interval training on a treadmill. It was horrific. Um, but I wouldn't have ever learned how to run. And I wouldn't have learned how to sprint on a treadmill. You taught me how to interval train on a treadmill, which I can use for life. And I use with some of my patients now um, who are just starting out. It's a great way to treadmill train. Um, I, in fact, would prefer to run on a treadmill. I think you know this about me. I prefer to train on a treadmill than I do um, running outside because I started on a treadmill. It's like I, I was a baby and I was like hooked on treadmill training and I, I loved it ever since, but I hated it in the beginning. So that's what those beginning classes looked like. I can't say that the exercises like the HIIT training or circuit training exercises have changed a whole lot, to be honest, because they're, you know, 
doing a, a step up or a lunge is this, you know, is the same a hundred years ago as it is today. Um, and it's still pretty awful. Um, but that's what, that's what the early days of training looked like. And what I liked about that was, was the group aspect of it. That's what keep me, keep, kept me coming back. You were really loud and positive. Um, and I don't think I could have, I, I don't think I could have like kept it up without that. I'm not sure I needed like another 30 minutes on the treadmill, <laughs> but I was successful. Um, you know, the, the numbers showed it. And you also taught me, of course, this was nine years ago, how to calorie log, right? And I have not, believe it or not, although I def, I don't do it consistently like you do. Um, I've calorie logged, like I calorie logged my pregnancy, post-pregnancy, not every day, but if I ever feel like I'm going off track, I just go back to my fitness pal and I'm like, let's see why, you know, let's figure out what I'm eating and, and just get back to, you know, the calories that I need. That's awesome. It's, it's so it's so fun to hear about those early days because this was that Fit Tracks program was. I was like a month into to getting a job there as a trainer, and mm-hmm. I was still you know naturally I'm very introverted, and so I was figuring out how to get around that in a job that requires me to interact with people. And so there, the the personal training manager's solution was, Hey, let's just put you in charge of this group class and great. Yeah. Trial by fire. So there was figuring that out. Um, interestingly about being really loud, you know, one thing you may not mention is this gym was originally a, a racket club for racquetball yeah. and other mm-hmm. racket sports. Um, so our classes were in a racquetball court, a very kind of small, no mm-hmm. closed off loud room. Yeah. And so one of the reasons that I was as loud as I was, and I'm still loud to this day, but maybe a little less so than I was then is because we were in the back corner of that gym where nobody who wasn't in the program would know it was going on. Mm-hmm. I was extra loud so that people in the other parts of the gym would be like, what is going on over there? And frequently, <laughs> you might remember frequently people would come and they would, you know, there's that yeah. little tiny like jail cell window on the door yep. mm-hmm. and people would just kind of poke in and, and look and see what was going on because they just hear like this loud echoing scream from, <laughs> from this class. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was my way of, of promoting the program. Wow. It, it certainly worked for everybody outside of the program. Everyone <laughs> inside is like, God. Difficulties. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about that FitTrax program too, which it, it, in retrospect, I hated the way it was structured because we actually, the gym paid, I forget yeah. exactly how much, but they paid hundreds right. of dollars to license this program yeah. from another company. And I remember, you know, maybe three or four months after running the program. I think you and I started the program in December and maybe by March or April, I remember going to the, to, to the management and I was like, listen, guys, this program kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. How about I make our own version right. from scratch and you can stop paying the licensing fee. Right. And they agreed to let me do that. And, and then we had the challenge of coming up with a name. Do you remember the second name of the program, which is by far my least favorite? Was it fit to fit, fit, fat to fit? It was attack the fat. Attack the fat. Yeah. It had fat in the word. You don't want like note to self. Just don't just leave out fat. The second that name came up, I remember it because I was sitting with the personal training manager and I was Googling like we were doing one of those business like name searches or whatever. Yep like generators. And we were typing some keywords in and I was just reading through the list and I read that 
not taking it seriously, but I could see the personal training manager's eyes light up. Mm-hmm. Oh God. And he was so adamant about that name. Mm-hmm. He was like, this has to be the name. And I Nobody wants to say that they're in that program. That right? was the, that, that right. is not like gonna be publicized. I was just talking about this with somebody else too. Imagine being in that program and every day that you show up, you have to walk up the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> right to the front desk. And now granted the front desk was right across from the main group fitness studio where there were frequently 20, 30 people hanging around to go join a class. Yep. And you'd have to walk up those stairs to the front desk in front of all these people and say, I'm here for attack the fat. <laughs> Cause I'm fat. Right? <laughs> and, and towards the end of, of before I was able to change the name again, I remember trying to beat people to the door to just like <laughs> acknowledge the front desk girl. Like, they're here with me. Like, just, just sign them in. Um, and then after a couple of months of like pleading and, and battling for the name, we finally were able to change it to something, which now, even to this day, I still kind of hate. But choose, it was, to lose. choose to lose, which was mm-hmm. better than attack. I think it was better. I yeah, think it was better. Yeah. Oh, un- undeniably so much better. Mm-hmm. That brings back a lot of memories. Yeah. I didn't hate that gym, Alex. I don't, I don't, I'm sure you have different memories than I do, but, um, it was cheap. Um, and it had awesome, (laughs) not a lot of positive. It had awesome, um, uh, group fitness classes, um, which ran like all evening and it was incorporated into the cost. So I, I haven't found kind of a similar gym since that time. And I know we all kind of lost lost our home base gyms during COVID, unfortunately. Um, so we all invested in our, our home workout equipment, but it's not the same. It's really sad to like, it's, I would much prefer working out in a gym myself, um, than working out at home. And Hesh is the, I think Hesh is the opposite. I enjoy working out with Hesh, but I enjoyed it in the gym. We used to go to one-on-one together and actually lift together and like do squats together. And I don't have a squat rack in my house, you know? Yeah. So I do miss it. It's, you know, I actually don't hate that gym that much either. Um, and and a, a kind of an interesting, cool story that not a lot of people know about that gym was that was actually the first gym as a, as a young teenager that I ever walked into. As an I didn't know that. Yeah. So my dad was a member there mm-hmm. at the time. I think I was maybe 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember again, first gym I'd ever been to walking up those stairs and and like entering a gym for the first time granted under much different circumstances right i was overweight i was out of shape had a lot of my own self-body image issues and so there was something kind of very cool about then when i went to get that job as a trainer kind of really walking up those stairs but as this different person kind of there to triumph and conquer the thing that that was you know so such a big obstacle yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and fond memories, nevertheless. Um, but I, I guess I'm glad to hear that I'm more polished these days. <laughs> well, I, I think hope, hopefully we're, we're all a little bit more polished <laughs> um, these days. No, of course. Um, I, I think you're more confident Um and again, that, that comes with career longevity. It comes with knowing what you're doing for such a, a long period of time. Um, and I love what you've never, um, what you will always do, you know, today and 
10 years from now is you'll always be curious. In medicine, we have to do the same thing. We have to remain curious. If we're doing research, medicine, whatever, we have a natural curiosity to us. Um, and you have that too. You also love evidence-based stuff. Um, and those of us in the medical field, the science field, like really respect that. We respect evidence, everything, right? We want, you know, don't give me this crap if it's not validated and studies have not shown blah, blah, blah. That's why, you know, I'm not, when patients come to me and they're like, I'm trying this diet, I'm trying this supplement. I'm like, not evidence-based, get it out of my face. <laughs> it's not that they can't try it, but I am like, so against quick fixes, you know, new stuff on the market that's not been proven, you know, for, for years. Absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right. And that's, that is, I've always steered myself in the direction of evidence-based because that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah. But it's interesting because in the fitness space, the, and it's, uh, it's, I don't know why it's a subsection of the fitness industry, but there's an evidence-based population of coaches. Sure. And so the few fitness conferences that I've traveled to and attended have been run by people in that kind of um, subpopulation of the fitness industry, this evidence-based population of coaches. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me when I'm out and about in the, in the greater world, and I'm talking to maybe other fitness coaches or people in the fitness industry and, you know, in, in any subpopulation in any industry, there's the well-known folks, right. The people at the top of that particular niche in, in that. And the, pop, the, the, the number of people who are working in the fitness industry who don't even know any of the like top of the food chain people in the evidence-based space, because it is such a small niche of the fitness industry, which again, blows my mind that the evidence-based population is the niche of the fitness industry, the small. So it's, it's a little scary. It is. It's super scary. When I talk to my patients about um, working with trainers or fitness trainers, they, you know, that because they already have an established relationship or they worked with one before. Um, I, I don't find myself myth busting necessarily because I, I don't, I don't want to bring down someone, someone's relationship with someone else. And, you know, I don't want to poo poo your, you know, the, the, the woman or man that you're working with. Um, but I need them to focus on like, you know, are you, I, I need them to go back to basics. Like, are you calorie logging? Um, is he or she working with you to calorie log or do they have you on like a, um, I call it a Jenny Craig diet because I grew up in the eighties and that's, but like a HRM diet or, you know, what are you, what are they recommending? Um, and are you able to maintain weight off of that? Does that make sense? So, um, I try to get an idea about what they're using big picture. Um, I don't care because I don't know so much about fitness and weightlifting and that kind of thing. And I just, you know, if my patient's active, woohoo, I'm happy for that. Um, but I, I'm not a big proponent of like, you know, my trainer has me using these meals, <laughs> like, okay, you're going to, you're, you're calorie restricting and you've got these meals, but are you going to eat those meals for the rest of your life? Like you need to figure out how to cook those meals, right. And maintain that for 10 more years or 50 more years. Yeah, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that when new clients come in and I kind of explain to them how the nutri nutrition coaching in my program works, which is 
you know, no gimmicks, no fad diets, no meal plans. It's we're going to learn how to track our eating. We're going to have a calorie goal that we're trying to stay within. And then within that, we're going to kind of treat all these different foods, the proteins, the carbs, the fats, some of our treat foods as puzzle pieces. And we're just trying to put the puzzle together and it can fit together in a variety of different ways. And there are the limitations, right? The calories are the corner pieces. It's got to fit within that. But within that, we can kind of figure it out. And, and one of the things that I will explicitly tell people is if you're looking for a meal plan, what that really is going to entail is me giving you a list of foods that you hate. Right. Yeah. And you're not going to eat them. Right. That's crazy. So instead, let's figure out what you do like and how we can make that work. Yeah. So that we can actually not be miserable. Yes, precisely. But it's, it's not easy, right? (laughs) Cooking is not easy. Feeding yourself is not easy. Feeding, you know, say you've got kids at home, like your, um, like Suzanne, who spoke on your first podcast. Oh my gosh, you have to figure out now, like what your 13 year old is going to eat and what you're going to eat, what your husband's going to eat, um, and how that's going to get you within your calorie goals. So it is not, you're right. It's, it is very puzzling, but you know what? Jenny Craig isn't going to do it. You know, the, the getting a frozen meal every day, is not a sustainable plan, unfortunately. Yeah. It, it, when I was growing up, my mom always had a rule. She would plan a dinner for our family. And if we didn't want that, there was usually one easy alternative. Like there sure. maybe some, some, like a rotisserie chicken in the fridge that we could have yeah. some of that for dinner as an alternative. But her rule always was, you either eat what I'm planning to make, you eat the alternative. And if you don't want either of those, you make it yourself. Yeah. I learned how to cook really early. <laughs> oh, that's funny. In toddlerhood, for those, for those listening with toddlers, um, we, we, Hesh and I plan meals um, Monday through Friday. You know this about us. We eat the same thing Monday through Friday, like with some variation, like a different spice or something. Um, so our poor children also eat the same thing Monday through Friday. It's not poor, poor children, but often they... Um, we just deconstruct the meal. So like on Monday, we do a stir fry with tofu and my daughter eats tofu. My son doesn't. So we just give him like a rice and a cooked vegetable. And my daughter gets rice and tofu um, because toddlers are picky. And I don't care like how much you try to force food on them or how creative you, you think you are. They're just picky. So we've just learned to like um, eat what we like and then deconstruct some parts of that meal to make sure they're getting a vegetable yeah. <laughs> um, along with the chicken nuggets or along with the grain, like the, the carb that we're eating that particular night. So there, it's not perfect. Um, but it's the same Monday through Friday and it really lessens like the burden of meal planning and um, figuring out what to pick up at the grocery store, all that fun stuff. Yeah. That's great advice. It's great insight. So let me ask you kind of one final question. Megan, what advice would you give? What advice would you give to the Megan nine years ago as she was beginning to embark on her fitness journey to help her be prepared to, to embark on that journey, given what you know now? Yeah. You know, what would have made it a little bit easier. I wouldn't have done anything from a fitness perspective differently. Right. I've, I've learned a lot and I love what I'm capable of. Like I, I love that I can run and I loved learning how to run. I love lifting. Um, absolutely love it. Um, I can't always do it as, you know, as impactful as I want to, but I love it. Um, 
But throughout that journey, I didn't always love it. And I didn't always love myself. So what I, what I would remind myself of is love yourself and appreciate your body the entire way, because your body, no matter where it's at in that journey is so beautiful and so capable. And it doesn't make sense, you know, to be working so hard and going through the, um, the challenges of losing weight, um, regaining weight or pregnancy or whatever. Um, if you're not going to love your body the entire time, it's like, and what's the downside of loving your body, right? It doesn't mean that you can't work out. It doesn't mean that you can't lose weight to love your body today. Um, it, it is tougher, tougher to do than to say, but I wish I had appreciated that. Um, and not felt like I had to hate my body to get to a space where I loved it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it was perfectly said. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your insight and, and, and your ideas and a great conversation. Thanks. I enjoyed it, Alex. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. If you feel inspired by this story, please share it with a friend. If you'd like to book a free discovery call, to talk with an A-Team coach, head to the episode description or visit us at ateamfit.com. That's A-T-E-A-M-F-I-T.com. We'll see you again soon.